Heavenly Father, bless now the reading and proclaiming of your holy word by the power of your spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May you be exalted and glorified, and may we be edified and built up as your holy people. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and for his sake we pray these things. Amen. The psalm this morning is Psalm 34. Hear the word of the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord Lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to the Lord Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There is a great threat to the Christian faith in America, but it is not perhaps where one might suspect it to come from. The threat is not from the ivory towers of academia or from atheists or Islamists. It does not come from deceitful philosophies, nor does it come from suffering. It isn't from illness, injury, insult intimidation or imprisonment. This threat is often overlooked and underestimated, which is what makes it so dangerous. Are you ready for it? The threat is this. Affluence. Affluence. We live in one of the most affluent societies in history. 
And even if we as individuals or family units don't consider ourselves to be particularly wealthy, we lack for little to nothing. We might have wants, but we have very few, if any, real felt needs. Further, we have benefited from living at a point in history in which there have been advances in medicine and technology resulting in a life expectancy and a quality of life unmatched in history. In general, we live lives that are devoid of dependency. We don't feel the need to rely on anyone or anything outside of ourselves. And so, in the safety and security, or at least the illusion of such, of this society in which we live, we have the pleasure of enjoying the comforts of this world. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that affluence is inherently a bad thing. Our lack of struggle, our lack of need, the ease with which we live is a tremendous blessing. But it can also be a curse. The pleasures of affluence can be intoxicating. And the spiritual consequences of being able to indulge in the comforts of this world can be considerable. What are the potential threats to our souls of enjoying a relatively comfortable life? I'm glad you asked. I think that David can help us on this question in the psalm. You see, Psalm 34 is the testimony of the cry of a poor man. For it is written by David at one of the lowest points in his life. If you notice the title, he's running from Saul who is trying to kill him. He goes to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, where he has to beg for bread because he literally has nothing but the clothes on his back. Ahimelech has none except for the holy bread, the bread of the presence, which David then convinces the priest to give him. David also inquires of Ahimelech about a weapon because he has none. And he is obviously concerned for his safety. Now, it turns out that the priest had none other than Goliath's sword in storage. So this is what David takes. And from there, David flees to Gath, where he meets with Achish, the king of Gath. And Achish's servants realize who David is. Now... You might miss this as you're reading through 1 Samuel, but Gath is a Philistine city. In fact, it is the hometown of Goliath. So David shows up in Gath, running for his life, holding the sword of the Philistine warrior who he has slain in the not-too-distant past, only to wind up in the presence of the king of Gath, whom, if you can imagine, is probably not too pleased with David. And David is terrified when they realize who he is. So what does David do? He pretends to be insane. He begins to make asinine marks on the doors of the gate and begins foaming at the mouth. And this is what the king says when he sees David. Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? And I love this next question. Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? 
So by the skin of his teeth and the spit running down his beard, David is delivered and escapes to the safety of a cave. This is the setting of the psalm, hence the title. By the way, if you're wondering in the title who Abimelech is, it is King Achish. Abimelech is to the Philistine kings as Pharaoh is to the Egyptian kings. Anyhow, Psalm 34 is a testimony of deliverance uttered by a man who understands his neediness. He understands that he is done for, save the Lord's goodness to him. And so he rejoices. He is thankful for the Lord's sovereign protection and care over his life. And he invites others to join with him in rejoicing in the Lord, in worshiping the Lord, and in experiencing God in his goodness. Now, rejoicing in the Lord, worshiping the Lord, experiencing God in his goodness are not dependent on being in a situation such as David is in 1 Samuel 21. Note how David begins the song. I will bless the Lord when? At all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. In all circumstances, in the mountaintop moments of life and in the valleys of life, we're called to bless the Lord. Here's the interesting thing, though. One would think that someone who is literally running for his life as David's situation would, might, might not be so inclined to praise God, to worship him, to thank him. But don't miss what's going on here by thinking, well, of course David is praising God. He's just been delivered. You would be correct, but only partially. David does understand that he has been delivered from Saul and Achish, but he also understands that he's not out of the woods. His deliverance in regard to the physical threats on his life is only momentary. And notice that with all of his talk in the psalm of the righteous being cared for by God, he still states in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Life is difficult. So back to my point. Let us not miss the significance of David calling for us to praise God in all circumstances because there might be great temptation in times of hardship or trial or tribulation to question God's goodness or even to perhaps question if God is there at all. In David's case, his hardship made him turn to the Lord all the more. And we should take note. But, on the other hand, when everything in life is going well, it would seem... An obvious thing to praise God when we can clearly see that we lack for nothing, when all of God's blessings are plainly visible, why wouldn't we worship God for his goodness to us? But here is the paradox. These are the times of perhaps even greater temptation. And maybe, just maybe, this is where the majority of us spend most of our time in America living in the blessings that affluence affords. So what are the potential threats to our souls of enjoying a relatively comfortable life? I want to mention three. First, we can easily become delusional about our true state. 
When we have no felt need, we can easily forget that we are still truly needy. Mother Teresa, who dedicated her life to serving the materially poor in Calcutta, India, was known to have commented on the spiritual poverty of those in the Western Hemisphere. It was easy for those she cared for to understand their neediness. They had very visible and basic needs, food, shelter, water, clothing. It wasn't difficult to convince them that they were needy. On the other hand, how do you convince someone who not only has everything that he or she seems to need, but in many ways is able to get anything he or she seems to want? How do you convince that person that he or she is truly needy? You see, we might have all of our physical needs met, but we all have a deep need for God. We have a need for him as our creator, as our sustainer, and as our redeemer. We did not create ourselves. We were created by God and for God. We have a need for relationship with him. He created us for this relationship. And it's in the context of this relationship that we find our purpose. Further, everything we have is a gift from God. If he does not sustain us, nothing will. You think about how at any moment, if God withdrew himself from his creation, it would all simply implode. Paul tells us in Colossians that it is by God's sovereign power that all things are holding together. He could withdraw himself from us and our hearts would cease from beating and our lungs would cease from filling with air. We have a need for his care. We also have a need for redemption. As our membership vows in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church make clear, we are sinners without hope of, just, without hope of salvation, justly deserving of his wrath, his great displeasure, except in his sovereign mercy. Unfortunately, one of the negative consequences of having all of our physical needs met is that we can begin to think that we are in need of nothing and no one. And I think evidence of this is seen all around us in our culture today. We have decided that we have no need for God. And this leads to a great spiritual poverty, which Mother Teresa lamented as being much more difficult to address than the material poverty of those she ministered to. She once stated, you in the West have millions who suffer from such terrible loneliness and emptiness. These people are not hungry in a physical sense, but they are in another way. They know they need something more than money, yet they don't know what it is. What they are missing really is a living relationship with God. So the first threat is a failure to recognize our neediness. Second, speaking of hunger, we can fill up on the appetizers and miss the entree. We can fill up on the appetizers and miss the entree. My mind was drawn to this this past week when I got an email from Texas Roadhouse for a free appetizer. I don't know if any of you do this, but I have trouble when I go to restaurants that bring something out to snack on before the main meal comes out. Every time I go to Texas Roadhouse, I don't even need a blooming onion because they bring out those unbelievably delicious yeast rolls with that succulent cinnamon honey butter. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
And I confess, I, I can't help myself. I have a medium, rare, juicy steak on the way, and I am completely full by the time it arrives at my table. I have yet to leave that restaurant without feeling nauseatingly full and disappointed in myself for my total lack of self-control. Now, I know that none of you have this issue, but I don't think that I've ever actually enjoyed my entree at Texas Roadhouse. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. By the time it arrives, I'm sitting there looking at it, loosening my belt, and feeling really sick. And reheated steak is not nearly as good as one right off the grill. But in very much the same way, the blessings of this life can cloud our vision to the blessings that we're supposed to be longing for, which are beyond this world. The scripture warns us of becoming fixated on worldly things and teaches us to set our minds on that which is above. It tells us that our inheritance is being kept in heaven for us. It is there. And we are to store up our treasures in heaven. The problem with living in affluence is, affluence is that we fill ourselves up so full of the blessings of this world that we have no room left. No room to long for the blessings to come, but more importantly, no room for God, who is actually our true blessing. We waste our hunger on the things of this world, we fill up on junk, and we miss the main meal. And you know, the funny thing about eating junk is that you can eat and eat and eat, and you're never really satisfied. You can feel sick, but you're not satisfied. And it's the exact same thing with trying to satiate our God-given hunger for him with the things of this world. They will never satisfy, but they can and they will mask our desire for God. So the second threat is exchanging the temporal pleasures of creation for the ultimate and soul-satisfying pleasure of the Creator. Third, living in relative comfort allows us to do what others who are in a desperate state don't have the luxury of doing. We have the privilege of spending time simply thinking about God in abstract ways. God becomes this set of propositions that we assent to rather than the one in whom we place all of our hope and all of our trust. We never really have to know him personally because we believe right thoughts about him. Nor do we ever actually rely on him in concrete ways because we live as though we sustain ourselves, whether we believe this in theory or not. So the third threat is that we never actually come to know and experience God in personal ways. We only know about him in theory. The psalm provides us with responses to each of these threats. So I want to spend just a moment highlighting these three responses, and it's very easy. Each one begins with a letter H. This is my three-point sermon. You might not ever hear another. First, we come to God humbly. Notice that one line into the psalm, David says this, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. The humble. Humility before the Lord is required of us. It is required if we are to come into his presence. It is required if we are to praise him in a worthy and appropriate manner. We can't come in before God in our self-reliance, boasting in ourselves. 
We can't come magnifying ourselves armed with an attitude of our greatness. Scripture teaches us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we need grace. Humility means that we take a good, hard look at ourselves and we see ourselves as we truly are. Remember that this is a psalm of deliverance. We might very well have times in our lives when we are faced with a physical threat to our lives, as David is in the context of the psalm, but regardless, we all need to be delivered. We have very real enemies against which we do not have the resources to fight on our own. We show up just as David did to Ahimelech with absolutely no weapon. We have a spiritual, sinful nature inside of us, which we inherited from our spiritual parents, in which we are constantly at war with, and we have an enemy who wants nothing more than for us to lose those battles. His goal is to kill and destroy, and he is relentless. Without God on our side, we lose every single time. We need God and we must realize that we need him. But we don't come to him making demands. We come begging for mercy and seeking his care. Humility is a prophet Isaiah who finds himself in the presence of holy God and declares, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Humility is the Apostle John who stands in the throne room of God in the presence of the Son of Man, and when he sees him, he falls at his feet as though dead. Dearly beloved, it is vitally important that we understand our spiritual poverty and we come before the Lord as we are. Poor beggars in need of God's grace and mercy, for it is the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of heaven. The Lord, David assures us in verse 18, is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Second, we are to come before God hungry. So we come humbly and we come hungry. Notice that David comments in verse 10 that the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is not an empty promise of affluence. This is an assurance that in the Lord we have everything we need. It tells us that God is caring for our material needs, but it goes far beyond that. What David wants us to understand here and in other places as well is that God is the good thing. In Psalm 16, David writes, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot And I love this. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is one of my favorite lines in all the Psalms. It's echoing what David has said earlier in Psalm 16. I have no good apart from you. God is our beautiful inheritance. David uses this metaphor of one who is surveying the land that has become his possession in his recognizing the boundary lines of this property. But this isn't physical land he was referring to. It's pointing to God. So let me ask you this. What exactly are the boundary lines of the infinite and eternal God? Do you get what he's saying here? God has given us himself, which is an infinite and eternal 
blessing. The blessing is endless and glorious. So how can any blessing be greater than the one who gives the blessing? John Piper, I think, puts it very well. He says this, you have tasted the appetizers. Go on to the meal. Go on to God himself. You have seen the shadows. Look at the substance. You have walked in the warm rays of the day. Turn and look at the sun itself. Yes, through the protective and sharpening lens of the gospel. You have heard echoes of God's glory everywhere. Tune your heart to the original music. Don't allow the temporal pleasures of this life, which were meant to give you a mere taste and direct you to the giver of these pleasures to keep you from the eternal pleasures in God. Come hungry for God himself. And third and finally, we come before God, seeking not just to know God with our minds, but to know him with our hearts. We come desiring a heart-engaging relationship. My favorite verse in the psalm and one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David not only encourages us to praise God, David encourages us to do far more. Experience God. It is not nearly enough to have right thoughts about God. What a shame it would be to think about how God saves sinners in a very abstract way, but never to experience the grace of God wash over you and cleanse you from your sin. What a shame it would be to think about who God is as our Heavenly Father, but never experience the warmth of His embrace. What a shame it would be to think about the Holy Spirit, but never to experience His life-giving power. Married men, what if your wife just liked the thought of you? Maybe they do. But what if your wife really wasn't interested in experiencing your love for her and sharing in that love in tangible ways? Married women, I ask you the same question about your husband. It wouldn't be much of a marriage, would it? The same is true of our relationship with God. We're created to glorify him and do what? To enjoy him forever. Jonathan Edwards commented in his book, Religious Affections, there is a distinction to be made between mere notional understanding, wherein the mind only beholds things in the exercise of speculative faculty and the sense of the heart, wherein the mind relishes and feels. The one is mere speculative knowledge, the other sensible or sensed or felt knowledge, in which more than mere intellect is concerned, the heart is the proper subject of it, or the soul as a being that not only beholds, but has inclined and is pleased or displeased. Edwards doesn't want us to simply think on God. He calls us to taste the beauty and sweetness of God. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul resolves to do when he comes to Corinth. He's just been to Athens with all of the philosophers who stand around all day and speculate about God. Who in their worldly wisdom discuss these propositions. And so Paul comes to Corinth, you can read it, and he says this, I'm done with that. No more lofty speech or wisdom, for I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him 
crucified. I will limit my speech to a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Come and experience the resurrected Jesus. It's my prayer, too, that we would long for a taste of the sweetness of God. That we would want to know Christ and Him crucified, not just in our minds, but deep in the depths of our hearts and our souls, and that God would grant us this desire. Come to Him humbly with hunger and with heart. And dearly beloved, taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Grant that we would get a glimpse of your glory, that we would be able to taste a bit of your goodness this day. And Lord, I pray that that would give us a longing for more. That we would yearn for you. And that all the things of this world would fall away and look as they truly are insignificant. Give us this vision of yourself. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God.